Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's coming up to 4 o'clock and it is Jane Bartlett for Tuesday Home Time and I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Thank you to Chris. Today, the International People's Conference on Mining in the Philippines. We're hearing again from Father Claude Mostovic, who was part of a, a delegation of 140 who went to that conference in the Philippines. What about the Syrian refugees here already in Manus and Nauru? That's a question Jack Smith has for Tony Abbott. Continuing the interview with Dr. Ralph Newmark, the Director of Latin American Studies at La Trobe University on the history of Mexico, and a book review, The Incubus of Intervention, by Indonesian specialist Dr. Greg Polgrain. But first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy and his week. A week, Jane Lister, when if you thought Friday seemed a lot shorter than normal, that Saturday came prematurely, well, yes, it did, and it did. See, Friday was equal pay day. I can recall celebrating women winning equal pay back in 1972, I think it was, so imagine what the gap would be if they hadn't won. But, but thanks to an event the previous Friday, there's not much to report. I've been housebound, form of house arrest really, but, but it's my own fault. I, I got off the train coming home Friday a week ago and there were all these, sorry, forces of law and order accompanied by all these responsible looking people in brown shirts or whatever throwing all these people into the slot, the cells they now have on every station to protect us. Something about visas and I, I went through every pocket in my bag and my wallet thingy and for the life of me could not find my visa. I know I should always carry it, well we know, but while they were throwing some clearly Anglo-Saxon white looking woman and her toddler into the slot, because they seemed to be picking on white Anglo-Saxon people, you look like, you know, Middle Eastern, I heard them say to a young woman in a hijab, it's, you know, okay, just like go through. Anyway, I took advantage of the diversion and stuck off the end of the platform. Also illegal, but what else could I do? And, well, I've been in hiding ever since, too terrified to stick my head out the door because I've searched the house and can't for the life of me, possibly literally, can't find my bloody visa. Hope you can find yours, listener. On such matters, congratulations to the media yesterday for banner headlines and leads that big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, had displayed his compassion for the Syrian tragedy by taking in more Syrian refugees. What a compassionate man, headline absorbers would have chorused. Pity the small fact that he was not increasing our overall intake was lost in the tributes. More Syrians and good luck to them and don't they need it, but less from other sources. Tiny maintained the compassion when he explained how we were really going to help the desperate, balance the not taking more bit, bomb the proverbial out of them instead. But, Tiny explained, we will bomb the proverbial out of them 
with compassion, with compassion. And if our compassion is successful in trained killing potential, no proper papers, queue jumping illegal boat people, there will be less refugees and therefore less suffering, less suffering. Presumably, we'll again concentrate our compassion along with our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, on wedding parties, because that compassion also cuts off potential terrorists before they even know they'll never exist. On compassion, top marks to the former Archbishop, the Muslims of Canterbury, Lord Carey for some, not others, and our very own Archbishop, the Muslims of Sydney, Anthony Fisher of Men Not Women, for calling on their respective governments to concentrate on the Christian refugees. The Muslims, and let us say we have nothing against Muslims. There are many good, good Muslims, but the Muslims have only themselves to blame. As Christian people, we have a responsibility to Christian people. The Muslims can go to countries where there is Muslim responsibility. Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Sudan, for instance... His Lordship also urged Britain to join the U.S. Arb and True Blue Aussie in bombing the terrorists out of existence. Naturally, with Christian love, perhaps a bit of torture, burning at the stake, but praying for their immortal souls, of course. Mentioned last week how the ACTU's Dave Oliver for Capitalism sat down with the Chamber of Profits' Jennifer Westercutt Wages and the True Blue Aussie Council, the GST, must be in the mix of social services to draft the final statement of the big Lord Rupert of Wapping and Fairfax Economic Talk Fest and doesn't it show just how concerned about the direction of the greatest little economic order of them all and her sense of sacrifice that Jennifer was prepared to sit down with evil. Well, Jennifer said this week, neighbours and people in the street had stopped her and congratulated her on her role at the talk fest. I think people have an appetite and hunger for ideas, she said. Well, many of the victims of her lot certainly have the appetite and hunger bit down pat, but that's me being cynical toward a great true Aussie. Jennifer then gave us a few of her ideas. Lower taxes for her lot and greater productivity by the lazy, avaricious workers. We can do the work by work. She means think up ideas on how workers can do the work. We can do the work, do the analysis, and then it's really for the community to see the trade-offs, such as Jennifer. Uh, Well, the community could trade off our necessary lower taxes by paying more taxes. They they can't selfishly expect us to pay less in the community interest without the community playing its role, accepting its responsibilities. And on productivity, we have judged that one of the barriers to squeezing more, no, no, to higher productivity is this tendency by workers to want to go home at nights and have weekends off. Those crippling conditions which may have been acceptable in a past era when True Blue Aussie wasn't competing on the great level playing field of world's best practice, market forces, competition policy have no place in the modern workplace and there are precedents
preference for workers being accommodated by their caring employers. Bangladesh, for instance, where employers so care for their workers, they lock the building and bar the windows to protect the workers, often rent-free. And this self-sacrifice by caring employers is reciprocated by major disruptions like the building burning down or falling down at great cost to productivity, showing how inconsiderate and thankless workers can be. Nonetheless, the great practitioners are in conflict with irresponsible elements of the evil unions over this China free trade agreement, just because the evil unions are unnecessarily a bit disturbed over a clause allowing caring employers to bypass true Blue workers and bring in slave, sorry, qualified workers without applying the very comprehensive inadequate tests that do exist. And while the background of workers is irrelevant, as long as they are not worse off than the norm, we won't say not exploited because being employed is being exploited, but the Minister for Trading Away writes Andrew Robb, and as we've said before, no need to play with that name, Andrew says the clause can't be changed because nothing can be changed. The Chinese would lose faith in Troubler was he as a reliable partner, and the evil unions of the Socialist Party are being irrational, irresponsible. Not that the Socialist Party is opposing the deal, and we're in a race at Flemington this Saturday. They'd be odds-on to win the cave-in stakes. But on this Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement, Andrew says negotiations must be secret. Trans-Pacific commercial confidentiality and all that. We have no right to know what the government's Andrew robbing us of on our behalf, but no worries. When they do finalise it, it'll be up for discussion. It'll have to be ratified by Parliament. Uh, so if there's things we don't like, we can change them, Andrew. Good heavens, that would destroy all we've been through. We, we have to go back to the negotiating table. Our Trans-Pacific friends would lose faith in Trubalawasi as a reliable partner. Of course we can't change it. Big responsible corporations could quite properly sue Trubalawasi for impacting adversely on their profits. So what's the value of public discussions after you've agreed to everything? We are a party that believes in open government. Top marks to state big supremo who who and Minister for Public pays private profits transport for attacking the evil union for causing massive disruption to the public and more particularly to the poor, caring pays profits, private profits employers, because who, who and the minister and the public pays private profits employers know evil unions are always to blame. How can the caring employers negotiate away workers' conditions, workers whom they so care about, when the evil unions refuse to agree with every demand the caring employers make, want to maintain their crippling conditions? Shame evil unions. Who, who, and the Minister and Lord Rupert of Wapping said the public was sick of these disruptions. But they must have long memories to recall the last time these evil unions took industrial action 18 years ago. Serial disruptors, serial militancy. And finally, in the unpopularity poll, good to see Tiny maintaining his dominance over Socialist Party Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition. Still well ahead, lots more unpopular than Little Billy. Although, I'm a bit surprised they're both not locked at 100% unpopular. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. And you can hear... 
Mr. Kevin Healy on 3CR, 8.55am, tomorrow morning at 9am with City Limits. Are your energy bills too high? Are you having trouble paying them or understanding what they mean? Trying to save money by changing your energy provider but found it all too complex? Targeted information for ethnically diverse and disabled energy consumers is available via a telephone and email advice service run by the Alternative Technology Association. If you are having trouble with your energy bills and want some advice, contact the helpful staff at the Alternative Technology Association on 9631 5427 or at energy at ata.org.au Continue today with Father Claude Mustovic, Director of the Justice and Peace Centre of the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart in Australia, who travelled to Quezon City in the Philippines in late July to attend a conference with 140 others from around the world, entitled the International People's Conference on Mining. Tell me about the role of the church, particularly the Catholic Church, in uniting people against exploitation. The church is working with other um, civil organisations justice organizations and also unions uh, together you know it must say that uh, the bishops a uh, number not all the bishops of course but a number of the bishops stand out and also religious congregations nuns especially but also male religious who stand with the people the indigenous people and the peasant people who are peasants farm workers and so on and taking tremendous risks to block some of the activities of these mining companies and also the harassment of the security forces against people. So I found it quite inspiring talking to one of the bishops, uh, Bayam Bung, who was the, the bishop there, and uh, he was um, you know, very informed but also very much uh, on the side of the people. So that's where it is. Uh, it's the sign of hope there. Were the human rights activists there too, people that um, go into these mining areas to support the people who are fighting the mines? Well, I, I think a lot of them were. They were active and a lot of the people were people who were you know, deeply concerned about the impacts of mining on, these, on uh, these vulnerable communities. When I say vulnerable, I mean they are vulnerable, but at the same time they're not giving in. You know, they are standing up to these people and, you know, and, they, and they value the support, I think, of, of these human rights activists who are taking a lot of risks. You know? and these human rights activists and, and lawyers too have also paid the price as well for their activities either being vilified or even sometimes being uh, you know, injured or even going missing you know for their support of the people it's very hard to say who was who was who because of, you know there's such you know, a large number of people but the people who were at the conference on the whole were all people who were deeply concerned about this issue of mining and of course it's not the people the local people who benefit in any way from these mines and it's often not even the government of the country that benefits it's interesting. You see, the, some of these mining companies would pay about 2% tax. And I know one company that doesn't, has got a sort of a moratorium on paying anything for about five or six years. You know, the mining companies, well, this one particular mining company I'm talking about, they, they talked about how good their presence is, you know, the great corporate citizens, and it's good for the country, it's good for our relationship with the government. And they said it's good for the shareholders, and I was waiting for them to say something where it's good for the local communities. 
and it's not. Even if they provide employment for the local people, which is not always the case, they bring in people from elsewhere, it's very much time-bound. And the number of people that are employed doesn't really take account of the many people who become unemployed because of uh, maybe ruining the environment where there might be tourism might have been possible and all those sort of other sorts of activities. So lots of places, you know, they might employ, you know, a few thousand people, but many more thousands are unemployed because of it. What resolutions came out of this meeting? Was it three or four days? Not quite in three days, but there was a, a statement came out of it one of the strongest calls was for solidarity and also uh, a few people object to the fact that there was like a completely no to mining because some areas happy to have some mining as long as there's proper consultation with the local communities. The Australians had a meeting with the woman from, uh, from El Salvador to try to uh, uh, see how we could maybe collaborate even more and one of the good things about the, uh, the conference was right in the middle of the conference was the, the Pope had come out with a, uh, with a statement how the mining companies need to pull up their socks. Was there a major resolution at the end? Yeah, it was a statement called Our Resistance, Our Hope. So I think it really reflects all I heard at the conference but also in the, very, in the communities that we went to. It was the resistance that creates the hope. The representatives from mining affected communities and people's organisations and concerned groups and individuals from 29 countries and six convents came together from diverse cultures and faith perspectives and social contexts and political identities with distinct dreams and beliefs and expectations. It said we support the rights of peoples, communities, states and the public and the public at large to say no to mining. The extractive mining industry is the ugly face of our current rapacious global material and energy consumption. Where the uh, crisis in the global mining industry, as the prices and contracts decline, which we know, we see these, these industries and corporations increasingly applying pressure on national governments for greater liberalisation, inequitable tax regimes and increasing regressive investor-state agreements to satisfy the unquenchable thirst for profits. We've listened to the stories from Asia, the West Pacific, Latin America, Europe, Africa and North America about the destructive impacts of this uh, large-scale mining on the lives of people. We have been witnesses and victims of the destructive effects of mining in our forests, agricultural lands that have been transformed into wastelands. People are dependent on the once productive capacity of the land that have been driven into marginal livelihoods and precarious existence. Serious health hazards have ensued and, and exploited the health and labour of mine workers. Human rights violations continue. Uh, we've heard the stories of women, human rights defenders, facing repression and gender violence. This repression includes cases of extrajudicial killings, criminalisation, stigmatisation and violation of the principles of free, prior and informed consent. Uh, indigenous peoples have long been paying the price for, of development, which is always the case. It doesn't matter whether it's with climate change or this sort of development. We've also engaged in, in profound conversations, sharing experiences of resistance and struggles, gaining lessons from victories as well as defeats, in order to move forward and guarantee a better world for future generations. And uh, these have insights and conversations have inspired us to remain 
committed and steadfast in our resolve to stop the further onslaught of imperialist mining plunder. So we know hope has come from all this together, and to this end, we strive to connect and reach out to networks and start mapping existing initiatives on mining-related campaigns. We recognise that women are continuing to organise and mobilise their communities, which I found very strong, uh, and other sectors to resist the onslaught of these industries. The challenging government policies through direct action, protest, demonstration, all forms of resistance, and they are creating visions of genuine people's development that's based on gender equality, environmental sustainability, and social justice. And we demand that recognition and respect be given to Indigenous peoples' rights to land, life, and and resources. Uh, one of the things that kept coming up all the time was the the loss of their traditional lifestyle. You know, uh, Indigenous peoples believe that their land is their life and as we know from Aboriginal people too, and along with the plunder of their land, it comes the demise of their communities. Uh, we commit to providing resources and forming an active network, that's the main thing, I think, of people who can assist in doing research uh, on the corporate and financial aspects of mining activities, including their adverse political and social consequences, and to unite to protect and recruit more human rights defenders We'll work to pursue international remedies and engage international mechanisms to stop mining, industrial mining plunder and, and pursue and coordinate legal suits and actions. And again, build strong linkages among scientists and affected communities, such as farmers, fisher folk, indigenous peoples and others, and expose the destructive effects of mining. So that's an edited thing of what, what was said. It's interesting that the, you know, the, the Philippines is is probably one of the third highest resource-rich countries in the world. And yet, you know, it's amongst, amongst the poorest because of what's happening. You know? And the people have to go, you know, go overseas to as domestic workers and get, you know... Exploited again. Yes, exploited again. The other thing was, um, you know, the, the need for you know, great, greater solidarity amongst the uh, people you know, who are affected. And there's the sense of commonality in terms of the issues around the world, you know, the, how, the, how it impacts on people's, you know, on, on the lives of local communities. And how to do that apart from having a, a yearly conference? Well, that's right. And I think this is where the conference was, was useful, where people were making connections with each other, follow up for the, after they left. Two days of conferences, not, you're not going to get a lot of, uh, you, le- you might learn a lot, but it's, uh, but it's not going to get a lot of... Uh, Work, you know, unless you make connections with people after. I'm sure that there was a bit of a lot of hard work going on and some stories that weren't particularly nice. Was there any cultural events there to, to lighten it up a little bit at the end? Oh yes, there was a lot of cultural, like singing and dancing, uh, interspersed with it. But a lot of it had to do with also with with a kind of a justice edge to it, you know, to. Um, highlight the, the resistance. That came through very strongly, whether it was from the Mindanao, people from Mindanao or other parts of Philippines or even uh, from overseas like the Africans. This, uh, there was this edge about standing strong against activity. Was there any media there? There was a little bit. Uh, I was interviewed twice, but well, I was interviewed when I was whilst up, I was still up in the north by UCAN and also by um, someone from, the, I think, the Philippine Star or the Philippine Inquirer, one of those... Um, was that your first visit to a mine such as the one yes, you saw? Yes, it was. And I, like, I made it quite clear all the time that 
that I was not going there as any kind of an expert. I was going to learn, and uh, you know, and certainly an eye opener for me. I had some idea, but when you really get there and you know hear the stories, because we spent a lot of time uh, with the people in the community, like you know, uh, in in especially in Didipia, but also a little bit in Runruno. When we arrived in Didipia, one of the, the first word that I saw was a big sign, but it was called Palayasin Oceana Gold, which means go away really it means you know if you wanted to be australian use australian language you could you could you know make it a little bit more stronger and sort of rather than say go away you could say bugger off or even more than that you know but uh it's this great big sign there you know posted there to say you know go away to oceana gold and what will you be doing post the conference here in australia i've just written a paper which is uh i work at the edmund rice center for Justice and Community Education as well. I've just written a short paper, which we have, uh, I do their research and publications, and so I write on different sorts of topics and so on. I've just written a paper on mining. We've had a meeting already. We're having a forum in September in Sydney, uh, to, you know, a gathering of people to report back on what, on what we uh, saw, what we heard, and hopefully work with people here in Australia, what we can do, you know, together to make, uh, you know, Look, I'd say you know a lot of people in Australia don't know what these what these companies are doing in our name. For one thing, the other thing is, of course, now that we've you know we're focusing on these mining companies, what they're trying to do, like Adani, and also in uh, the Liverpool Plains in central New South Wales, and it's coming home to roost. It's obviously had a big impact on you going to visit those places. Well, it has an impact for me because you know I'm, I'm full time into peace and justice but the thing is whenever people's lives are impacted you know and these people have been you know really badly impacted in you know and for a long time and they're so resistant then uh, you know you, you sort of you can't help but be moved by it. it's a bit like the you know the they've ripped the heart out of this place you know the full life you know a mountain that was that was full of life had its heart ripped out of it but there is still hope because the people are resisting. He was a delegate from Ghana uh, who, was, who came with us to this uh, area at the Dipio, Nueva Vizcaya. And he was just sort of saying, reflecting on his, what he saw, and I think he just said it for us, you know, and put it in a very, very powerful way. And that was Father Kord Mostovic, who took part in the International People's Conference on Mining in the Philippines and actually went and visited the Australian mining company's place in um, in the Philippines and people were shocked and horrified at the, the destruction that is being wrought in those places and hopefully after conferences such as this something can be done to support the local people. Early this morning I spoke to Jack Smith from Project Safecom in Narragin, Western Australia, a human rights group, and asked him why he believed there was an exodus of people from Syria through to Europe at this time. And you never know this if you don't have all the population statistics and deals. I mean, there has been movement since a couple of years, but in the beginning it was Iraqis who kind of moved out of the way to Syria, diverted to Syria, and now suddenly Syrians are on the move. And I always have to think of a picture of birds or animals in advance of a thunderstorm or an earthquake. Somehow they seem to know that beforehand. And I really do think that human nature is a bit like that as well. Suddenly we know it's time 
and there is something about population movements that's not acknowledged at all in how we look at this um, this population movement notion in geographical social science that we do not acknowledge that somehow there is a collective consciousness going on that suddenly says we are now on the move. That's what happened. Perhaps it's the voice of ISIS, the disgusting attitude of the Assad government. There have been bombings of civilian centers by the Assad government as well. I don't have enough insight to actually really pinpoint that, but here it is. We are on the move. We're in the move with thousands and thousands. And what I do like about this whole thing is that Experiment Europe is being tested. Experiment Europe was always about, you know, free trade amongst all the nations on the European continent, porous borders to open borders, Schengen agreement about refugee intake, that they have the right to enter, they uh, shall be processed as the country of entry, and after that they are free to move to anywhere in Europe. But then, of course, there is um, also Germany, which is now under Angela Merkel, shaking off the last shadows of um, Nazi Germany. And really, she has stepped up to the plate in a really big way. In 1999, Germany was making a commitment in the face of uh, rising street protests and political movements of neo-Nazis that they would never, ever let that dominate the political landscape in Germany again. So in 1999, Germany made a very clear commitment about anti-racism, openness to foreigners, openness to diversity of culture. And they've really stuck to their guns in the last 15 years. And Angela Merkel, no matter what she has said before that, has actually stepped up to the plate on that same platform again. And so you see this beautiful movement of, and I must say, the almost free movement of people into Europe who, you know, were blocked by Hungary, one of the nasty governments in Europe, the Hungarian government, wanting to control and wanting to blame them for probably being scum, lock them up in camps or stopping them from moving into Europe. And they just came to a point over the last week where they said, well, stuff you, um, Hungary, we are going to Europe. And they carried placards about Angela Merkel, a photo of Angela Merkel, and they said, Germany, Germany, we're on the, way, on the way to Germany. And they had heard Angela Merkel very clearly, and here they are, thousands of them, and they are just jumping on trains, finding their new future with a big smile on their face. I really liked that, that happening. And, of course, then we get a political trigger. I mean, here's a little three-year-old boy washed up on a beach in Turkey who's done more for world politics than you and I and a thousand other consultants and lobbyists in his little short life. And after his life ended, he did more for world politics than we can almost imagine. His picture became the defining center of political discourse over the, over the next week or two. It's, it's really fascinating to watch. And, of course, Australia is being dragged, kicking and streaming into the international community. The resistance of Tony Abbott couldn't have been bigger. But he has absolutely no chance of um, sticking to his stupid national security paradigm in the face of this. He's just a clone of Cameron, isn't he? That's right. And it was so funny, wasn't it? He, initially, David Cameron in the UK came out with a commitment to 4,000 people. 
Now, he's changed that now to 20,000. Tony Abbott was almost waiting for it. Like, he was almost saying last week, I'm not going to say anything until David Cameron comes out. And David Cameron came out last week, Friday, I think it was, Friday afternoon in the in the House of Commons. Then Tony Abbott says, we will do something. And then initially it was, but the numbers will not change. So we'll take Syrians instead of other population within the same quota, which is basically... We punish other refugees because we take down more Syrians, and he couldn't get away with that either, so he changed his tone again. Now we have even as far as Hewan um, Jones, who's this morning, said we need to take 50,000 people, and not 10,000 like Labour. We need up to 30,000, 50,000, and that's a liberal backbencher, Hewan Jones. It's lovely to see this developing in Australia, but of course we should never forget Prime Minister how many Iraqis and Syrians came to Australia on a boat in the last three years, and where are they now, Prime Minister? Can you detail, by the end of the day, the number of people, women, children, or men, where are they, and what are your plans for them? And because nobody wants to talk about our dreadful record in refugees and asylum seeker treatment, nobody in the Liberal party wants to mention that so they're all falling over themselves to talk about the refugees over there so we can be silent about the refugees over here the old split mad attitude of australia is being exalted in the parliament at the moment so everybody falls over themselves talking about the syrians on the other side of the world so we don't have to talk about the refugees over here and how we treat them but the whole world is talking about how we're treating our refugees well that's right it been have been spilled a long time ago and you saw last week and one and a half week ago the damning editorial in the New York Times about Australia's treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. And, of course, um, we need to live with it. But I want to see in this discourse, this hothouse of discourse in the Parliament this week and next week, I want to have somebody stand up and say, what are we going to do with the ones we already got? I think we need to address that. And that needs to come either from a Labour backbencher or from a Liberal backbencher or from the Greens. I haven't heard it, but it needs to be said in that context. Stop being sanctimonious about people on the other side of the planet without mentioning the dreadful things we inflict on them once they're here. So there's the unfinished world, the silent planet. And Naomi Klein was in Australia, Melbourne, in the week of Dangerous Ideas, the conference, and she called them black ops sites. Our black sites are not Guantanamo Bay and wherever the Americans have prisons, but it's called Nauru and it's called Manus Island. And it's about time we start addressing that. If we want to talk about refugees, well, I'll stop you in your tracks. You little politician, answer me. What is happening on Manus and Nauru? How dare you talk about the refugees on the other side of the world again? Because that's an old habit. For 35 years, politicians, especially on the conservative side, have fallen over themselves to talk about the refugees over there and silencing the talk about the refugees over here. And that needs to end. So, of course, this morning we have the great, bright light, Cory Bernardi of Halal fame. So Cory Bernardi has consulted his great hero, Andrew Bolt, on his blog... And he's come out and said that the little boy who died on the beach in Turkey, the little three-year-old, was an economic migrant because his family just went to Canada because they wanted dental treatment. They're economic opportunists. 
I wonder how he will be treated today. I hope he gets a lot of flack about that. And the flack will come from liberal backbenches. Eventually, I want to hear Tony Abbott say to... What do you think of your friend Andrew Bolt, Tony? Come on, mate. Get it out in the open. Stop your friendship with Australian idiots. And will you condemn Cory Bernardi for what he's done? So there's a challenge. Again, it's probably going to be one of the unsaid things in the Parliament. I see the Labour has come out blasting Cory Bernardi about it, but I want to see that happening from within the Liberal Party. So here's all the unfinished discourse. You know, we, we talk about discourse and how great it is that we're not talking about refugees. Well, it's the refugees over there and not the ones over here. Don't hold your breath, Jack. That's Jack Smith from Project Safecom in Narragin in Western Australia. St Kilda Indigenous Nursery Cooperative are celebrating their 20th anniversary with a community open day and spring plant sale. An extensive range of native plants, bush food and wildflowers will be available, plus activities, talks and kids' sensory bushcraft corner on the Saturday. Head down to 525 Williamstown Road, Port Melbourne on Friday the 18th and Saturday the 19th of September from 10am to 4pm. St Kilda Indigenous Nursery Cooperative is a 3CR supporter. And the final part of my interview with Dr Ralph Newmark, the Director of Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University. And it was Mexico, past, present and possibly future. We pick up on Ralph speaking about the beginnings of the Mexican Revolution in 1910. All the sides get together to get rid of the old dictator, and they do in 1910-11. But once you win, the alliance breaks down because they had different. And the thing went on for 20 years. One million people, Mexicans, died in this fight. Ultimately, the triumph is the conservatives, and they really win the war by 1920. And what you get is a Mexico with the rhetoric of revolution, but really a same-as administration. One thing that does muddy the waters is that these were nationalist governments and they did say that you know, Mexico, Mexican cultural nationalism was valued. So the land issue? Well, in the Constitution of 1917, it talks about it, but it was never implemented until one president in the 30s starts acting like a revolutionary. His name was Lázaro Cárdenas, but he only lasted six years, which was the pres- presidential term. So what you're saying is that, is the the grassroots people, the peasants, didn't gain anything from this revolution? Virtually nothing. Much, in a sense, it was musical chairs at the top. I mean, they basically killed Zapata in 1919. Then they basically said that Pancho Villa could go back to the ranch as long as he kept out of politics, but then they killed him. So social inequality is endemic? Absolutely. Absolutely. This Cardinus period, where it really is like a renaissance of ideas of redistribution of land, education for these people, is quashed very much in 1940 with under the presidencies of firstly Alvira Camacho, then uh, Miguel Alaman who builds Acapulco uh, Resort. A very big swing, if you like, back to sort of a liberal, well, basically a US model. Moving to the 1960s, there was turmoil in many parts of the world. It also happened in Mexico, didn't it? Well, absolutely. 
Of course, this is really interesting and does relate a little bit to today and Brazil, and we're talking here about the Olympics. Now, it's interesting that Mexico in 68 had the Olympics. In 70, they had the World Cup. And Brazil, of course, the opposite. They've just had the World Cup and then now they're going to have the Olympics. So this is very interesting when you have such an international event where, you know, the whole world's watching, the whole world's watching in a, what we might call a de- less developed, developing country. You know, this is not a first world that we're using the old language. We don't use that anymore. But the point was now Mexico City 68. This is incredible. The ideas of, of, you know, I've always been there amongst certain you know, people of the left in Mexico that you know, the revolution was never fulfilled, uh, those ideas, you know, injustice, you know, what was it all about? So many people getting killed. And, you know. This is classic demonstration in the streets in Mexico City and the Mexican police completely opened fire, killed 300 students in the street about two or three weeks before the Olympic Games. Which they hit it, didn't they? Well, people, we knew it happened, but it was certainly not, um, you know, these were troublemakers. It was not really seen for what it was. The Olympics went ahead. I mean, there was no... Um, I thought they downplayed the number of people who were killed. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, maybe it was said... Well, the 300 I mentioned is what probably was the real count. But, yes, no, I mean, at the time they got the Olympics starting, it was seen as a small number of people killed in a sort of... A, a demonstration that got out of hand, you know. I mean, you can easily... Um, that, but what I'm, what I'm saying is that this is, reflects for me, you know, what could well happen in Brazil this year. I'm not, no, I don't think the Brazilians will open live fire. I mean, I think they'd be nuts, especially in a global world where you can't get away with much anymore, certainly when you're having the Olympics. But it does expose these countries in inequalities. But yes, so this was a turning point. Well, a turning point, not really. Not really. I mean, it was in a sense that, in a way, it really showed that the elite were not prepared to tolerate dissent. And the Mexican system rolls on in many ways. Uh, the pre, now what I probably didn't mention was that it was a one-party state from really that revolutionary period under the wonderful name, ultimately, of the PRI, pre the uh, Partido of the Institutional Revolution. I love that word. I mean, it's almost a boxy institutional revolution. <laughs> oh, boy. So, you know, Mexico really continues to be a country to serve the purposes of the elite. And also a staging post from South America through to the United States for drugs, contraband, well, this whatever. Well, this is bringing it to what most people think of Mexico at the moment. Can I just say this is not a very new phenomenon? I mean, the issue is, and for me the whole question, I mean, all this leads up to this point, that the Mexican-American border, or Mexican-US border, is one of the most fascinating borders in the world in an academic sense and a real sense. She always challenged the students to name another land border, land border, that really divides, if you like, the, the less developed and the developed world. In old currency, we'd say third world and first world. A land border. I mean, we as an island, Australia, don't have a land border with any other country. And we see the issues going on here of boats arriving from developing countries. Look at the Mediterranean. You could probably go around by land. And I mean, in Macedonia recently, we've seen this issue. I mean, there are artificial 
borders like Gaza and Israel. I mean, this is a border, and I suppose you could say North, South Korea, whatever. But the point, I think in terms of long historical borders, the Mexican and the US border is the great, what I call the sort of the membrane of the developing divide, developed divide or whatever. In other words, it's this membrane across between really history of developed dominance subjugation. Now, what's going on? You've got to see it in that sense, because what's going on is 10,000, I think over per year, people are getting killed on this border, particularly on the Mexican side. That's something like up to around about 60, maybe over 100,000 people over the last decade. This is amazing. Especially put in proportion to, you know, we talk about Afghanistan and Iraq, which is horrific. But this is right on the bloody border. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. But right on the doorstep. What's it about? Well, it's about supply and demand and wealth and poverty. That's what it's about. I mean, I always make this quote, and I think it's fair to say, is that to, you know, get smuggle uh, coke, say, into the US, you can make more money than your ancestors made back to the Aztecs. You know, I mean, that's, it's about money. It's about poverty. It's not about crime or somehow Mexicans like a lot of, films try to make out of somehow sleazy, you know, criminals. It's about poverty. Now, people will risk their lives for this. Then, of course, you get a five-way war, and I think the what's developed is, is that there are a number of cartels in Mexico that specialise in smuggling drugs into the United States. Can I say it does go back... Remember Prohibition, 1920 to 1933? I mean, Mexico are experts at smuggling stuff in when the U.S. Um, and the U.S. Don't, there's a demand upstairs, up, I mean, north. And a lot of the drugs and other contraband aren't actually from Mexico. They're no, coming from south. I think the origins of the more latest uh, situation is that the U.S. put a lot of energy into, because the cocaine, let's say, the coke comes from South America, I mean, predominantly uh, back blocks of Bolivia, Peru, uh, it's processed in Colombia, and after all, it's, it has to be processed, mainly Colombia. Now, for years, uh, the way to get to the U.S. was island hopping on little planes through the Caribbean to Florida. Now, the U.S. put a lot of effort into closing that corridor, the, what, the Miami, uh, Florida corridor, and, of course, what the drug people in um, Colombia did was to try and look for experts who can get things into the U.S. <laughs> the class of Mexicans have been doing it for years. So they actually do deals with these cartels in the sense of giving them a share of the profits, and you get the drug wars born on that border particularly. So it's a sort of a, a rea- it was just a way of getting the produce in. Now, of course, there's other things coming in, ice and all sorts of things. But the coke trade really was precipitated by a demand in the US. I just really want to say this, that, that there'd be no drug wars if there wasn't a demand for it. It's simple. And the irony that it's all being packaged and supplied from the Colombia, who is the, the major friend of the United States in that part of the world. Well, it is interesting. I mean, the point is the American, well, again, the US sort of um, pay lip service. I mean, without getting too conspiratorial, I mean, there's no doubt under President Uribe in Colombia, the um, Operation uh, Colombia and the uh, clamping down uh, of coca production, etc. But it hasn't. Look, the, it's one of these things, you know, if there's a demand, 
and it's illegal, it doesn't matter. And there's going to be corruption. Get, yeah. And indeed, look, the money, I think this is the point, and I think we see here in Mexico with the police forces completely corrupt. We're talking money that for a poor country is just unbelievable. And people do things. I mean, the law enforcement, the corruption in both countries comes from that colonial period. And then we have Chiapas. We can't talk about Mexico without talking about Chiapas. Well, in Chiapas, I mean, I think this is one of the more fascinating aspects of Mexico, which is a fascinating country so much. In the deep south, okay, we're talking about the border. And by the way, I don't want to discourage anyone from going to Mexico. It's a fabulous place to go to. It's so interesting. But the borderlands of the north are not a place to hang around, I think. (laughs) Let's be honest. But south of Mexico City is fascinating. Down in the most southern state of Chiapas, in about the early 90s, on the day, actually, on the day that the North American uh, Na- uh, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was signed, out of the jungle, so to speak, being dramatic, this group of what they call, and they call themselves Zapatistas, which, of course, is named after the great man who, of course, interpreted the Mexican Revolution as a real revolution. Incredibly, there is a linkage here to 68, that many of the people who uh, very much started this were uh, survivors of the 68 massacre. The university, well, of course, subcommandante Marcos was a university <laughs> philosopher, actually. Now, these people are fascinating. I think initially many of us certainly thought that this was going to be something that would really change the Mexican landscape. In a way, it still might. By the way, very savvy with the internet, the Zapatistas, you know, in a sense, they're very 21st century in that sense, that they have many allies around the world, even though they're isolated in a, one of the southern states. The Mexican army at first tried to crush them, but they've, what they did is they retreated and set up their own sort of autonomous community. It's almost, to be honest, it's an anarchism. When the Mexican elections have occurred, they've actually, they don't participate. They have completely divorced themselves from the Mexican state. You know, even at times when some people thought, well, why don't they help the lefties at the elections? Uh, AMLO, which was, who was a, a Mexican presidential candidate who really, who did seem, at least changed a bit now, but seemed a bit sort of, you know, offer some leftist, uh, center left type approach. They didn't help him because in many ways they saw the system, no matter what, as something that we'd completely break with. Now, I think what's going on down there are some of the most interesting social experiments and that actually give us hope of horizontal democracy, real horizontal issues of sexism, of ownership, of communal. In many ways, it's isolated, but it stands as a beacon, I think, of what, particularly in a world where neoliberalism has really got out of hand. After all, they did emerge on the day that this incredible neoliberal agreement occurred, which has had a devastating effect on Mexico, by the way. That was one of my next yeah. questions. What, what has that impact been? Well, I think one of the most illustrative issues of a free trade agreement is that uh, because it's dominated by liberal economics of that, production moves to the, most, the cheapest product, which, uh, of course, can have all sorts of distortions. Basically, Mexico imports... They've stopped producing their own corn. They can import cheaper corn from the Midwest to the U.S., which is produced, might I add, with subsidies. I mean, the U.S. all very well free market or free free trade, but that doesn't apply to them. 
It's really amazing how if you're the top dog, you can actually create the rules. And, and the point being, it's all very well to talk about, you know, you drop your trade barriers, drop them, drop them down, you know, but they protect many of their industries themselves. But they're the most powerful, so what can you do? Has Mexico actually lost some of those ancient seeds now, the, the maize seeds, the Well, there's talk seeds? of that. I mean, I'm not sure exactly, but there's certainly production at the lower level has almost, as I said, it's been swamped by cheap imports from the US. I mean, the maize is not just food. I mean, I think this is the issue for Mexico, is that we're talking about a sacred crop, something that is so fundamental to Mexican identity for it to be imported from <laughs> I mean, given the whole history, it's sort of, we're talking here more than just economics, really. What's the relationship between the United States and Mexico on a tourism level? Well, again, this is really interesting because, in a way, tourism is a real two-edged sword in many ways. Obviously, for many countries, it brings an enormous amount of foreign exchange. To some people. To some, well, but... Well, indeed, to some, but well, first of all, certainly to tourism owners and operators. Unfortunately, it also does bring money to the service industry surrounding them. Now, the point is everything's relative. I mean, if you're someone who has no money, your crops are no longer viable even to sell anymore due to importation. Obviously, getting a job cleaning the toilets at a hotel provides you with employment. I think in many ways areas like, well, Cancun's a classic example. Years ago it was Acapulco, but I think Acapulco's moved into a different category. Mostly it's domestic tourism. Foreign tourism is now completely dominated, it seems, from what I can see. A certainly amount up in the Pacific coast a bit further up, but Cancun is where, I mean, I, don't, I have been there and it's pretty, pretty scary. But, you know, you wouldn't even know it's Mexico in some ways, you know, maybe just... The, the cacti on the plate or something. I mean, there's this, um, it's just a playground for wealthy people. And the schoolies, which a place where North American college people can go and do whatever they like for a while. Look, my point about tourism is, is that one has to be very careful. And I mean, this flows over to Cuba. We've got, I mean, Cuba more so than Mexico. At least Mexico's got oil and other industries that they can rely on. But uh, uh, the point basically is that you don't want tourist monoculture, in my view. It really creates real problems. You start to package your culture in cliches. You know, a show at the Hotel of Mexican Music or something like that can be really tacky. My view is this is what people want. They want the whole package of the country they visit, you know, in a two-hour show in the hotel. You know, they don't even probably go beyond the... the the area around it, to the beach and the hotel, beach and hotel. So, you know, your Mexico is the restaurant and um, some people putting on a dance for you or something. It's a really, I think, very sinister stuff. How is the level of inequality now? Has it changed at all? Well, I believe that it is exacerbating and getting greater. I mean, the whole issue, it seems to me, of the neoliberal idea, I mean, there are, there is talk and they love to parade ideas that, uh, you know, so much percentage of people are out of poverty. Well, it depends how you measure poverty, of course. Uh, however, what is clear is that the generated wealth is being highly concentrated at the top, highly concentrated at the top. And, of course, whether it's helping people at the bottom, well, again, it's what sort of jobs they're getting, how the money's being distributed. I think a lot of these figures are very rubbery. I know in Brazil they love parading. I once, 
well, somewhere saw something that now 51% of Brazil are middle class. <laughs> I can't see that. But, you know, it's, how do you define it? Okay, I mean, this is, again, the, these sorts of figures are up to how we define things. Just finally, Ralph, the ecology, the environment of Mexico, we saw horror stories years ago of the pollution in Mexico. A lot of the... The ancient ruins still there. What's it question, like yeah. there at the moment? Well, well I mean, like any industrialising uh, country, and certainly one without the strictest of, uh, of regimes. Yeah, the health um, of the rivers. The, yeah, I think it's certainly a problem. I think there is a, a level, I mean, there's, there's a green consciousness to some extent within certain sectors of the, um, uh, what you might call the middle class that, that is there. Can I just say about ruins? There is, I mean, one thing about the revolution, and let's be fair, it did create a high level of national cultural consciousness. And, of course, the pre-Columbian ruins are very well looked after. Uh, from what I can see, there are archaeological institutes. Um, the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology is the best in the world, I think many would argue. Very, well, it actually is two things. I mean, it is a nationalism, and Mexicans are very nationalistic on that level. Uh, but it's also tourists, I mean... I would say most tourists. I mean, you've got your Cancun types who just want to hit the beach. But I think mo many people do want to see these extraordinary pyramids and um, the, the culture. So it's in their interests. And I think, you know, generally there is a nationalistic idea here. But it, it, it um, as I said, it links in with the tourism. And there's nothing wrong with going to those museums. I think it's the sort of package tourism where people are just on a, you know, a five-star uh, beach resorts that are part of the problem. But look, many, I mean, hundreds and thousands of Australians are backpacked around Mexico, such as myself. I mean, there's lots of us who do the real, you know, I mean, we want to see that culture and we're not, we're staying not in five-star hotels. That, I think, is a wonderful aspect of Mexico that you can still access, but... And the flora and fauna? Well, I mean, th there are parts. I think there's a consciousness of not completely stuffing everything up. Um, I mean, a lot of damage was done by the Spaniards, you know, clearing land, etc. Uh, there are parts that obviously are regarded as, you know, the national patrimony and that. Uh, my view is it's not something that's completely ignored, but there are economic pressures on all these things, as there is in Brazil with the Amazon. A good place to go. Look, I would encourage everyone to go to Mexico. I mean, it is one of the most interesting places in the world. That's not to keep your eyes shut. You will see things that uh, sadden you, absolutely. But you'll also see a vitality, and they're really carrying on of the cultures and a, and a love for the cultures. That's not to say that measures up with the real elite. I suppose if they can get a buck out of it... <laughs> They'll flog it. But I, I just think Mexico is, is, I love it so much. And I would say every Aussie should go there. Well, there you go. That's Dr. Ralph Newmark, who's the director of Latin American Studies Institute at Latrobe University. And here in Melbourne, it's um, 4.57. I'm speaking now with Dr. Greg Polgrain, who lectures in Indonesian history, politics and society at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. His latest book is The Incubus of Intervention, Conflicting Indonesia Strategies of John F. Kennedy and Alan Dulles. The focus of this book is the clash of two strategies of two men of different generations and the consequences of the success 
of the Richter, Alan Dulles, amongst whom were the death of three world leaders, which in turn led to the death of over one million people in Indonesia, and the people of Papua denied their independence. Greg, we need to know the background of this man, Alan Dulles, who was ultimately responsible for so many deaths. Who was he? Everybody links Alan Dulles with his role in the 50s under President Eisenhower as head of the CIA. But actually, he began his life in intelligence even before Kennedy was born. He was in intelligence in the First World War. So he's very experienced. Nobody has ever come near him in the experience that he had in intelligence. People underestimate his power in the pre-war days. Not only was he the top lawyer for Standard Oil, that's Rockefeller Oil Interests, based in Europe, but he was also working for the State Department. They were allowed to do that in those days. He was conducting all the top arms limitation talks after World War I, and he and his brother John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State under Eisenhower, they were the two leading persons involved in rearming Germany through investment in America. Sullivan and Cromwell was the legal firm for Standard Oil, and through that legal firm they were operating, getting investments to reinvest in Germany, and that's how Hitler came on the scene. Hitler was interviewed by Alan Dulles as soon as he became leader of Germany. Amazing. To give you an idea of the insight and intelligence that Dulles had, he said that Hitler would sooner or later declare war and use Poland as the excuse. And that's exactly what happened in 1939. And this is five, six years beforehand. Incredible insight. I've described him as 50 years ahead of his time. People don't understand how bright he was. He wrote a book on the Boer War when he was about eight years old. He was a prodigy. <laughs> Incredible. He was an evil genius. An evil genius. Was he acknowledged in his time as a genius? Oh, absolutely. During the Second World War, he was with what they call the OSS. That was the precursor of the CIA. He was the top man in Switzerland. And he actually penetrated Hitler's inner circle because of all the pre-war German contacts that he had. He got inside the inner circle advising Hitler, which is quite remarkable. As a result, in the 50s, when he was CIA chief, he was the icon of, of American intelligence, basically. He's been described by the top British intelligence operator, I think, Colonel Strong, or Strong anyway his name was, as the world's greatest intelligence operator. He had probably more insight than most of us into what deeds Dully's got up to, but uh, he just went bad, and that's the problem for America, because the U.S. Senate investigation in 1975, conducted by Senator Church, looked very closely at what Dulles had been doing in the 50s, and he was heavily involved in assassinating foreign leaders, taking over governments. That was his expertise, really, starting from the Versailles Treaty. He was involved in regime change, starting with the Habsburg Empire way, way back in the days of uh, World War One, which is amazing. And people think of him too much, I think, as Mr. CIA, but uh, he had extensive networks quite separate from the CIA. And he kept these networks while he was working in the CIA and he was conducting other operations at the same time. When the time came for the surrender of the Japanese, he was the first person they approached to give you an idea of the power that he was wielding at the time. Talking about the deaths of world leaders, the head of the UN, why was he connected to the death of Doug Hammarskjöld? Bishop Tutu in his Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa 
when I contacted them, I had long Skype conversations with the group around Tutu, and they said they basically had a warehouse full of documents and information that they were filtering through, trying to find out everything about apartheid and all the wrongs that had been committed. And just before the whole investigation was to close down, a week before, they found 10 documents in an envelope from a South African intelligence organisation implicating Alan Dulles in the death of Doug Hammarskjöld. Doug Hammarskjöld was shot down in a plane in the Congo in September 1961. And for years, the UN and various investigative bodies couldn't decide whether it was just a simple aeroplane crash or an assassination. But just recently, in last July, that's a month or two ago, the United Nations conducted another... They said it was going to be the final investigation, but... Now that they've concluded it, they said no, a big proper investigation needs to be done into the death of Hammarskjöld, and they're now describing it as assassination because of the plane crash. Dully's involvement in that, what I'm saying is that, yes, he was involved, but he was using that scenario in the Congo as a, a cover for his own operations, you see. He was so far ahead of the people at the time, he was pushing a button on one side of the world to get an effect that he wanted on the other side of the world. And the other side of the world for him was Southeast Asia. So Hammarskjöld was on the point of intervening, and he, had he lived up from that, in September he was involved in the Congo mediation. September, October, November he would have gone to the United Nations and he was planning to make a very big announcement to resolve the long dispute between the Netherlands and Indonesia over sovereignty of West New Guinea. I was really surprised when I got this information because I'd interviewed, I was interviewing a fellow called George Ivan Smith, who was Hammarskjöld's right-hand man for eight years or so, so he was really very close to Hammarskjöld. I actually met him and tracked him down. He was living in Gloucestershire in England. I wasn't quite sure who he was because of the name Ivan. I thought he might have been Russian, but actually he comes from Brisbane. After three visits or so, we, we were quite relaxed and that's when he started talking in a more relaxed tone about what Hammarskjöld really was planning to do. He was going to introduce a concept he called OPEX, Operational Executive. He'd started it in one or two countries in Africa that were, you describe them as indigenous countries rather than third world. They were really uh, indigenous places on the, on the verge of independence. And he was, his policy was to introduce United Nations staff to help them develop the economy. And he, was, he thought New Guinea was an ideal place for this OPEX to be implemented. And Kennedy was conducting talks with him on the quiet. And Kennedy was actually promoting what Hammarskjöld was doing. But Kennedy didn't want this to be known because he wanted both the Netherlands and Indonesia to remain on side. He was trying to get Indonesia closer to the United States as part of Cold War policy. And the Netherlands, of course, were NATO allies. So, had Kennedy been faced with making a decision between one or, you know, one or the other over sovereignty of New Guinea, he'd be criticised, and he, that's why he wanted Hammarskjöld to go ahead with UN intervention. Yeah. So that was really a difficult, difficult choice for Kennedy. Once Hammarskjöld was killed, assassinated, Kennedy then had to step forward and make the decision who the US would prefer, and they chose Indonesia over their NATO ally. And what did Dulles know about riches of the Dutch East Indies? Well, Dulles was, as I said, the top lawyer for Standard Oil. And in the 1930s, 
Dulles was the top lawyer in based in Paris, and he was the man who was getting pressing for Standard Oil oil concessions in the Netherlands East Indies. In particular, they wanted to get into New Guinea, and they've been trying to do that since 1913, I think. So a really long time. And the Dutch wouldn't have a bar of the Americans because they didn't like the way Rockefeller operated. But because of the downturn in the Dutch East Indies economy as a result of the Depression and the changed circumstances of Japan, who were becoming stronger, Dulles managed to get a deal with the Dutch so that Standard Oil got into New Guinea, but with a 60%, 40% arrangement, so that the US had 60% of this company that he formed, Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company, or Petroleum Machapay, in NGPM. So for the first time, Standard Oil actually got into the Indies with a 60% dominant role, which is amazing. And Rockefeller actually wrote his memoirs just before the war and, and basically said, he was referring to Alan Dulley, saying, he's done wonderful things. And that was one of them. He also got them into oil in the Middle East, of course, but getting them into the Indies was a very big accomplishment for Standard Oil. But Kennedy got in the way. Well, Hammershaw got in the way first yes. because he threatened to disrupt this idea of New Guinea. Dulley's plan, Dulley's strategy for Indonesia was to, first of all, to make New Guinea part of Indonesia, which was part of Sukarno's quest to kick out the Dutch completely, unify Indonesia. But once New Guinea was part of Indonesia, Dulles' approach was he was anti-Sukarno and he wanted a military regime to take over Indonesia. This was the policy followed in many countries around the world where they were getting military regimes to, to run the place. They really wanted the, the army to take over. Kennedy's approach when he appeared on the scene, was first of all to solve the New Guinea crisis, and yes, he gave New Guinea to Indonesia, but then he wanted Sukarno to remain as president, and this was in direct conflict with what Dulles was planning. Kennedy had no idea about the riches of New Guinea, oil as well as gold, the richest oil ever found in the world. 200,000 barrels a day it came out when it was finally brought to the surface. So Kennedy had no idea. He was basically following you know, what information he had on the desk given to him by Dulles. But Dulles was operating on, a, on, a, on another level there. He was working in favour of Standard Oil because Standard Oil would have the access or Standard Oil companies. And Freeport, who's operating now in, in Papua, is a derivative of the original company was Freeport Sulphur, which was a Rockefeller company. And that became Freeport Indonesia. And now it's Freeport McMorrin, but Rockefellers are still well, well represented on the board, as was Kissinger and a few other interesting people. But uh, Kennedy had no idea about the wealth of New Guinea. So Kennedy's approach was to get New Guinea as part of Indonesia, then pour in US aid. The problem for both of them, for both Kennedy and Dulles, was that Indonesia was in, well, not quite more, but the PKI, the Indonesian Communist Party, was getting stronger. And uh, even though there were only a few people actually leading the PKI, most of them were landless peasants who joined the PKI simply to get paid in the hope of getting a bit of land to grow a bit of rice. They were really not political at all. But Kennedy was going to pour in aid, increase the standard of living, and thereby decrease the attraction of the PKI. Dulles was working on a different strategy. His idea was, as I said, to get the army in power and to, by eliminating, this is what happened in 1965, the actual elimination of the PKI occurred. 
he was also operating in the, in the Cold War context because both Moscow and Beijing or Peking in those days, they were arguing or starting to argue over who could get control of the PKI. If the Chinese Communist Party got control of the PKI, it would give them the edge over Moscow and vice versa. The PKI was the largest Communist Party outside the Sino-Soviet bloc, so they were both seeking to gain control over it. The PKI was really a source of conflict between the two, between Moscow and Beijing. But that was never revealed to Kennedy, even though documents show that Dulles knew full well the Sino-Soviet conflict was quite genuine. Kennedy was never fully informed. He approached the Sino-Soviet conflict as though it was possibly still was an intelligence ploy. We know from after 65, of course, when big tank battles occurred between the Russians and the Chinese on the border, uh, that it was definitely very serious. You know, I remember speaking with a Philippine student who was in Beijing in the late 60s, 70s, where they were so fearful of Soviet attack. They used to have uh, trial runs for atomic attacks so that everybody in Beijing would have to, on the sound of the great sirens, they'd all go down into underground bunkers to uh, seek shelter as practice for an atomic attack from the Russians. That's how serious the conflict was between them. That's when Nixon stepped in in 75, of course, and changed history. Whitlam beat him to it a little bit, but Nixon did most of the work. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Dr Greg Polgrain, who is a lecturer in Indonesian history, politics and society at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland about his latest book, The Incubus of Intervention, Conflicting Indonesia Strategies of John F. Kennedy and Alan Dulles. When Kennedy came to power, was he aware of the reputation of Dulles? Yes, that was his first announcement in the Kennedy administration, can you believe? Pressure was put on Kennedy to reappoint Dulles as head of the CIA. And Dulles and Edgar Hoover were reappointed, Edgar Hoover being head of the FBI. Those two announcements were the first two announcements made by Kennedy as members of his new administration. My goodness. So that was a a drastic error that he'd made. He knew he was a legend. He described him as a legend. And after, after the Bay of Pigs, which was basically erupted a month or two after Kennedy came into power, which was all Dulles' work again, which was a fiasco, invading Cuba. He didn't trust Dulles at all after that. Eventually got rid of him later in uh, November, I think it was, November 1961, just after the assassination of Hammarskjöld, in fact, but nobody's linked Dulles' final ousting. Everybody, well, I think it is Kennedy was arranging to have him kicked out because of the fiasco in the Bay of Pigs. Yes, Kennedy was aware of Dulles' legendary status in American intelligence, but uh, he eventually said he it's very difficult working with him because he didn't really understand how Dulles operated. Of course, Dulles was operating within the CIA and within his other networks outside the CIA as well. That's what was the problem. Do you wonder he didn't trip himself up on occasion? Well, that's his brilliance because mm. he was the key investigator in the Warren Commission investigating the Kennedy assassination. Again, appointed by President Johnson, one of the first appointees under the Warren to investigate the assassination. Didn't trip himself up because, well, it's brilliance, I think. It's almost hard to figure out 
how that didn't happen. Was there ever any suggestion that he might have been involved in the death of Kennedy? Oh, many people have suggested it, but... Uh, Not till later? There's rabid conspiracy theorists going on for ages and blaming all sorts of people, and Dulles was one of them. But what I'm saying here is basically derived from direct interviews and from US records. And on that basis, I, I definitely had to get this information out fairly quickly because there's a, there is another book coming out in America soon on Kennedy and Dulles where the, the author intends to describe Dulles as having dementia. And that's why he did some of these silly things. You know? But, I mean, you wouldn't have someone with dementia in charge of the Warren Commission, would you? It's quite simple. And the other point was people often question why Kennedy decided to take the steps that he did with, in relation to Sukarno because people blame Sukarno for all sorts of things and they can't imagine why Kennedy would have formed a relationship with him. It's because most of the accusations, for example, the starting confrontasi with Malaysia. Malaysians, of course, they blame Sukarno, but so did Suharto, who took over after Sukarno. Suharto, for 30 years we've had blame put on Sukarno as starting confrontasi, but both Kennedy and the top U.S. diplomat, Ambassador Howard Jones in Jakarta, he informed Kennedy that Sukarno did not start confrontasi. And on that basis, and on the personal links that Sukarno and Kennedy made when Sukarno went to visit Kennedy in Washington, he realised he was a nationalist and that he did not start confrontasi. In fact, during 1963, Sukarno desperately tried to stop confrontasi. I just came back from Kuala Lumpur, launching the book Incubus of Intervention. Most people in Malaysia still regard Sukarno as starting confrontasi. But we think of him in terms of how he was speaking in 1964 and 65, you know. That's after Kennedy was killed. But in 63, Sukarno was trying to stop confrontasi, and Kennedy was planning to go to Jakarta to stop confrontasi together with Sukarno in early 64, but of course, November 63, he was killed. Had he made that visit, we would have a different history in the whole region. We certainly would, and a lot of people wouldn't have lost their lives. Yes, yes, I know. So it's, what it's blame do you put on the, the events following 1965 on the intervention of Dulles? Well, Dulles, of course, was out of office in 61, but he was still very powerful because of his role in Standard Oil and because of the other networks. He was still quite powerful. You know, 63, as I just said, he was 63, 64, he was the top man in the Warren Commission. But if Sukarno had stayed there... If Sukarno had stayed, it would completely have disrupted Dali's plans. And you wouldn't have had the, the, the massacre of oh, two million people not. in no, Indonesia? No, 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 it wouldn't have happened like that at all. Kennedy's plans w would have succeeded. That's why I think he had to be kicked out of the ring. But Kennedy's plans were operating on a longer time frame, you know. It didn't suit Dulles. Dulles wanted, the, first of all, not Sukarno in power, but the military in power. And he wanted to act quickly to exploit that argument, the Sino-Soviet dispute, and to split the two. The, the actual expression used by the uh, Rockefeller Brothers panel, they wanted to drive a wedge between Moscow and Beijing. Indonesia became that wedge. The elimination of the PKI, a million or more people, uh, was really the, the spark that started action, shooting, that is, tank battles between Moscow and Peking. The argument burst out after 65 in full force. But it was brewing and 
there was evidence in the 62, 63 period, but uh, it was still up for debate. But only a few people who were very close to monitoring events, Dulles and a few other experts, were really aware that it was a genuine dispute. Kennedy did not. And he states that in the records, that he's going to proceed according to the idea that the dispute between Moscow and Peking is not genuine. It could be resolved any time, so they don't want to make a decision based on Sino-Soviet dispute. And, of course, the people of West Papua denied their independence and no. their wealth. Well, one other thing that I found in the records was that 1958, 57, 58, John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State under Eisenhower. Late 57, I think, he proposed giving independence to the Papuans, which is really quite surprising. He put it on the table for discussion, put it that way. His brother, Alan, did not want this, of course. Americans generally think the two were working together. Alan Dulles and his elder brother, John Foster Dulles, Secretary of State, were working together, and they were like a team, a bit like the Kennedy brothers were a team. But there was great rivalry between John Foster and Alan Dulles. It's amazing that they had that rivalry all their lives. Even when they were children, you know, climbing up a hill, they'd start a big argument over who got to the top of the hill first. Alan Dulles was uh, always trying to prove himself as fit individual, fit athlete, and he was actually born with a club foot. That may have influenced his, I don't know, approach to life. He always wanted to become, a, he was a good swimmer and a good, te- very good tennis player, and he was always trying to prove that he always really wanted to be Secretary of State, but his brother became Secretary of State, and when his brother was in the late 58, 59 period, he died in April 59, I think, Alan asked him, after you've, you know, passed away, should I take over the reins and become Secretary of State? But John Foster said, no, definitely not. We're not going to have you because he didn't trust his brother. That's amazing, isn't it? I think that's the clearest example of the rivalry between them, that John Foster was unprepared to, to let Alan take over because he, had, he was known to have so many covert operations and involved in killings even then, and John Foster obviously didn't trust him. What about the death of Michael Rockefeller? What has that got to do with this story? Michael Rockefeller was the son of Nelson Rockefeller, Governor of New York, heir to the Standard Oil throne, or well, Standard Oil wealth. And Michael Rockefeller disappeared along the southern coastline of New Guinea in 1961, late 1961. And his death was blamed on, they said he was eaten by cannibals, eaten with sago on the beach. But when I looked into this, I interviewed person that Rockefeller was with, Rene Wassing, when he disappeared. And what really happened was Wassing and Rock, young Michael Rockefeller and two Papuan policemen were trying to cross a big river. The boat they were in, a little, well, two canoes with a board across the top that overturned. The Papuans, because the current was so strong, took four hours to swim ashore, but the two white fellas clinging to the upside-down boat drifted out. They saw the Papuans reach the shore and waved, but that was the last they saw it well the last Michael Rockefeller saw them, the boat drifted out all night. And in the morning, Wassing told me, it's estimated they were about 22 to 25 miles out to sea. They couldn't see land anywhere. Wassing told me he went around in a big circle saying, there was no land, you know, we couldn't see land anywhere. We didn't know which way to go to land. But Michael Rockefeller panicked and thinking the direction of the current was the river still pushing them out. He swam in that direction, but actually the current was parallel to the coast. Wassing said he tried to stop him from going, but he, he just he's a young fellow and he couldn't stop his panic and he was never seen again. 
Wasing was picked up that afternoon. The policemen who swam ashore notified authorities and they sent over search craft and they dropped a raft just before dark and Wasing had to swim from the upside down boat to the raft, he said, and he was absolutely fearful of being eaten by sharks. He'd apparently seen sharks. So it's highly likely Michael Rockefeller was eaten by a shark. He wasn't even swimming towards the land. He was swimming parallel to the coast and a little red petrol tank under his arm. He was trying to use it for flotation. Eventually drifted ashore, you know, 70, 80 kilometres down the shore. And they said, oh, that's proof that he reached the shore. But of course it's not proof. And the people who started this rumour that he was eaten by cannibals was a standard oil team that was doing oil drilling on shore there. They used to fly lunch to Michael Rockefeller in a helicopter when he was going along in a boat with Wasing and the Papuans. The helicopter would deliver their lunch every day. And he wrote, wrote all this in his diary, which was found later in the upside-down boat. So it's remarkable. This idea that cannibals were in control of Papua really influenced the United Nations vote, you know, in 61. It's strange, you know, paranoia, really. Paranoia took over the media. It's a good media story. Son of the governor of New York eaten by cannibals on the beach. But cannibalism was there five years before it had stopped. And I remember discussing with... General Nasution, head of the army, Indonesian army, about cannibalism. And he agreed with me that the cannibalism story was not true. And to my surprise, I said, well, do you know he came from Sumatra? And I said, well, your area in Sumatra, they had cannibals too. And he said, yes, that's true. We, we were cannibals. <laughs> but the mission people came and it, it stopped. You know? Some became Muslim in that area, others became Christian. I was really surprised that here we have the head of the Indonesian army admitting that, yes, his people were cannibals at one stage too, just like the Papuans were, you know. But cannibalism had stopped. I don't think there's any evidence that Rockefeller came to shore. Various people have said, oh, you know, traces have been found and all this. It's just concoction to get a story in the media. He was so far out to sea, he was swimming parallel to the coast. And Kennedy later described the place as cannibal country, you know. That was his excuse part of the excuse for handing over rather than giving Papuans independence, which is what Hammarskjöld was going to do. So there's a little bit of uh, double talk there from, from Kennedy as well. He's certainly no angel. I found evidence in the records also that he was... He seemed to have prior knowledge of that incident in 1962 when motor torpedo boats were coming ashore. Indonesians sent these MTBs to raid Kaimana on the southern coastline and I think that may have been a request from Washington to start an incident in order to bring the whole issue to, to the negotiating table in order to stop the Dutch from pursuing self-determination, which was getting stronger at the time. Dirty work there too. A member's tasked to research this book. Greg, how long have you been working on it? Oh, don't ask, my goodness me. It was published in January this year, but I wrote it last year, mostly in the one year. But I'd uh, researched, my goodness, well, I'd, I'd interviewed George Ivan Smith back in 1982. I'd done a lot of interviews when I was living in London and the Netherlands. Interviews go back to the 80s with René Wassing, for example, when he was working in a museum in the, in the Netherlands. It's carried on, I suppose, and uh, I've been reluctant to published for a long while because of this you know everybody anybody who writes about Kennedy is usually labelled as a conspiracy theorist you know? I was just reluctant to step into the ring but the evidence seemed to be really quite strong and I think 
what I'm putting forward is evidence-based argument that Dulles was uh, involved not only in the death of Hammershall but, but also the death of Kennedy. Dulles had the advantage, I suppose, of having support from the Joint Chiefs of Staff because of the, the larger scenario of the Cold War splitting Moscow and Peking was his ultimate argument and Kennedy was threatening to disrupt this uh, strategy and on that basis I think he had support from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Kennedy was seen as a a new boy on the block and he was befriending Sukarno who was described as a communist or pro-communist even Vice President Nixon under Eisenhower, Nixon was Vice President even he had described Sukarno as a nationalist, he was said he was not a communist but Zully's in 1957, 58 59 managed to paint Sukarno as a communist or pro-communist you know. and if Sukarno remained in power he said the PKI would become the government, which I don't think would have happened, but uh, Sukarno himself said it wouldn't have happened. So Dulles basically had uh, yeah, very strong armed support. Kennedy threatened to disrupt his entire strategy, his Cold War strategy. How has the book been received? I had a few good reviews. You can check on Google, I suppose, just check on Incubus of Intervention and you'll see the reviews that have come up. One, one for the Foreign Policy Journal, I think it was, in Canada saying it was yes it's been well received I should add the word incubus in the title well it's not the medieval term that we usually read in the dictionary I suppose it's as you see in the uh, the cover of the book it's a quote from Dean Acheson who was Secretary of State of Truman he uses the term incubus of interventionists and I basically borrowed it from him but I've acknowledged it, acknowledged it there. He was talking about China, U.S. intervention in China, but I've, I've used it for U.S. intervention in Indonesia. But it's the title comes from Dean Acheson, basically. 1949 is a quote. So this basically means the incubus of intervention, the, the weight of responsibility that the U.S. will one day carry because history will out, history will reveal all the different interventions that were clandestine operations that were conducted. But the, the other meaning that I tried to get is the incubus of Dali's intervention in Indonesia, that is the weight of responsibility that he carries or we carry, involves the loss of some important people, Kennedy and Hammerschild amongst them. That's the real incubus of intervention that I'm, hopefully people will realise when they read the book. And to read the book you need, it's called The Incubus of Intervention, Conflicting Indonesia Strategies of John F. Kennedy and Alan Dulles by Dr. Greg Polgrain. And it was published by the Strategic Information and Research Development Centre in Petang Jaya, Malaysia. That's Dr. Greg Polgrain, The Incubus of Intervention. See if you can get your local library to get it, if you haven't been able to get it elsewhere. That's all for me for now. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Jonathan will be with you in about 50 seconds. But I'll say bye for now, and I will be back next Tuesday. Bye for now.